World records fell, American records fell. Legends grew bigger or were born in Eugene at the new Hayward Field. The World Athletics Championships are over after 10 days. So how exactly did Eugene fare? And what was the reception locally and from TV sets and computer screens around the world? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with your Oregonian. Up next, a quick recap of the World Athletics Championships. I chatted with sports editor Joel Odom. We talked about Sidney McLaughlin and Noah Lyles and Athing Mo and the big takeaways from the meet, what it looked like from inside and outside the stadium, and much more. Here's our conversation. Joel Odom, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Joel, the World Athletics Championships are in the rearview mirror, and you know people are leaving Eugene for destinations unknown around the globe, most likely around the States. But I'm wondering, kind of as we look back, what performances and specific events stand out as the signature moments? Well, I think there were several uh, really superlative performances. You know, I think um, the fact that we, in the second weekend, just the past few days, uh, we saw three world records fall, uh, starting with Friday night, Sydney McLaughlin, the um, 400 meter hurdler. She dropped her own world record by something like 0.7 seconds. Um, she she ran the, that 400 hurdles race in 50.68 seconds. Um, she had just set, also breaking her own world record, uh, you know, about three weeks prior at the U.S. Championships for fifty-one point four one. So, just how how much she she shattered her own record was you know significant, and um, that was that was an amazing performance for sure. And then um, on Sunday there were two more. There was um, the hundred the women's hundred meter hurdler uh, Toby uh, Toby Asuman from uh, Nigeria and. She not only set a world record, but she did it in a semifinal race. You know, she ran, I think her time was 12.12 seconds, dropping the world record. It it had been 12.20. And then in the men's pole vault, um, which sort of put an exclamation point on the meet, um, the the Swedish uh, pole vaulter Armand Duplantis uh, broke his own his own world record as well. I, I believe it's the fifth world record that he has set in that event. And he cleared, uh, cleared the pole vault bar at 20 feet, four and a half inches. So I would definitely start with the world records that we saw. And then beyond that, um, you know, there were some, some really amazing moments elsewhere. Um, you know, the U S sprinter, Noah Lyles breaking Michael Johnson's American record and winning the 200 meters, um, dropping, dropping that mark to 19.31 from 19.32. Um, and just his, his celebration, he was very, um, very excited and, you know, ripped his Jersey off and just, just, you know, went and, you know, hugged his family after. And, um, and then there was, uh, you know, a couple of locals, I think that were, very noteworthy with their performances. Um, Ryan Krauser, the men's shot putter, you know, he won his, his first world championships gold medal. He had already owned the world record and he already had won Olympic gold, but he didn't have the world championships gold. And so, you know, 
seeing that the first weekend, it was, it was not a surprise, but it was, it was just, you know, a cool moment, um, for him to, to finally have added that accolade to his long list of accomplishments. And then the other one I would point to, I would say, uh, you know, this, this might've been just one of the more surprising and also very cool moments was, um, the women's javelin thrower, Kara Winger, who's from Vancouver. Um, you know, she's retiring at the end of this season. She's 36 and is a four-time Olympian, um, but had never won a global medal. And she sort of had to sneak into the world championships. Um, at the U.S. championships, she, she, you know, she, she not only won the competition on her final throw, but she also uh, achieved the world championships standard distance on, on that final throw to sort of squeak into making the world championships. And then, you know, in the, in the competition, um, she, she had a similar, it was a similar story. She came down to her last throw and, you know, moved up into silver medal position on that final throw. And, you know, again, it's, it was her home, you know, basically her, her home track. She, Mm -hmm. she has competed at Hayward for, for years and years. And, uh, again, just a, a, you know, a special moment for her, um, in her final season. Yeah. Talk about drama too, the stakes and to do it on, on the last throw like that is, a is, a you know, sends shivers up the spine, right? That's what sports is all about. Exactly. So you were down there, not inside the, the confines of Hayward proper, but down in Eugene. Um, can you talk about what our presence was from the Oregonian down there? Kind of who, who was on the ground and um, what their impressions were? Because obviously you're working with our reporters who are, who are covering, you know, what's this sprawling event uh, where there's things happening all the time. Yeah, you know, we had uh, several folks down there who were there throughout the entire, you know, the entire 10 days of competition. And then we also had um, some rotating reporters who would, you know, come down for a day or two to, you know, pick off different story angles here and there. And, you know, I think um, it, it was interesting um, the, the, the folks who were at the stadium, you know, I mean, it, it, it obviously we've our sports reporters have have covered you know meets at hayward field plenty of times but this was this was sort of i i think on a little bit grander scale than it normally is you know even with um how many media were covering it from all over the world and you know just sort of how sprawling the you know post-race uh media area was i mean it it's it's it sounds you know like the athletes after they came off the track for events you know they're they're put through this, you know, winding maze of different stops that they make to talk to, you know, <laughs> TV reporters and to, you know, print, print, you know, reporters and bloggers. And, um, it's just, you know, normally it's, it's a much more straightforward, simple process, but that, that was interesting to me, just, you know, sort of how many, how many stops they were making, um, <laughs> how, how long that post-race process was for them. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, the impression I got was that, you know, the event was, you know, pretty well organized and well run. And, um, you know, maybe they would have liked to have had, um, a little bit bigger crowds, but it sounds, it sounds like the ticket sales were, you know, fairly good and, and, you know, decent sized crowds. Um, 
I'm curious about what we know about attendance at this point, uh, Joel. We're talking Monday morning, um, and you know, it just ended. Um, but do we know what the figures were? I know that the final few days attendance figures hovered around you know twelve thousand for the evening sessions. The final few days, I believe, and um, the the number that I saw from World Athletics was uh, some somewhere around one hundred and forty six thousand total tickets sold for the ten days of competition. Um, you know, Hayward seats, uh, I think the capacity for this event, because they added some temporary seating, I believe it was 15,000 was, um, the, the new capacity. So yeah, there were definitely empty seats, but you know, I, I would say it was, um, you know, maybe 80% full, um, on the, the, you know, high interest nights. And I, I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's particularly bad. I don't think that it, it's a necessarily a negative sign that they didn't sell out every day of the competition or anything like that. So, yeah, we, you know, as we're preparing in a newsroom for you know, any big event, whether it's the World Athletics Championships or the Eclipse back a, a few years ago, or you know, responding to a breaking news event, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion ahead of time, or um, if it's possible, um, and planning. And on, on this one, there's a lot of concern about whether Eugene could handle this. And obviously the, for right, you know, for, for a good reason, this is the first time the U S had, um, hosted an event, uh, the world athletics championships. It's usually in, you know, Beijing or Tokyo or some major global city. Um, and Eugene obviously is super small compared to Beijing, but, um, you know, what was the story on the ground from, uh, reporters, uh, that you were managing or just, uh, from our planning meetings, like did things go according to plan or did Eugene handle this or was it overblown? Was it a combination of the two? Kind of what, what was it like? You know, the sense I got is that Eugene handled things just fine. I think there were definitely, you know, shops and restaurants right adjacent to the stadium where, you know, there were definitely times after the competition, it would have been difficult to get in at several of the the restaurants right around that area. Um, I heard of, you know, hour, hour and a half waits, you know. Um, but I don't think that that's atypical for, you know, any, you know, any big sporting event. And I, and by and large, I think that the, you know, sort of crush that people had maybe expected or, or that um, we thought might happen um, it didn't really materialize. And I think part of that, you know, I didn't necessarily think about it ahead of time, but I think part of it is, um, you know, we're talking about a town that's used to having this entire university population of students and now it's, you know, in the summer. And so all those students or a huge percentage of them are gone. And so, you know, in some ways I think the, the track fans, just sort of replace the student population in a way and and the town was able to you know for the most part keep up with it and and handle things just fine from an infrastructure type standpoint yeah i'm a uh oregon duck alum and uh, anyone who has lived in eugene knows that it's uh it's different if you stay if you're a student and you stay in the summer it's a it's a different vibe and and uh um you know because there aren't the other you know 15 to twenty thousand additional students, just a handful stay. For sure. The sports reporters on your team are an experienced bunch and they've covered 
a lot, you know, national championships, NBA playoffs, big events. What was the sense from what you were hearing from from them? Like, was this uh, was the old Hayward magic there? Um, were they kind of saying, you know, that was that was amazing, or was it, um, you know, didn't have the same feel? I definitely heard again. I think for for certain moments, certain events. Um, that the crowd was really electric. Um, you know, when the, the women's Jamaican sprinters swept in the, you know, women's hundred meters. And they also, I think went one, two in the women's 200. Um, you know, our, <laughs> one of, one of our reporters, Nick Daschle was telling me just about how, just how loud the stadium got with, you know, they had the Jamaican fans had noisemakers and, uh, we're just really, you know, really, it, it was a, a big celebration of these making their presence felt. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Making their, definitely making their presence felt. And, you know, I think it was the same that javelin thrower, Kara Winger, you know, when she was getting ready for her final throw, she asked the crowd for help, started, you know, clapping her hands over her head and the crowd really responded and, you know, um, it was, it was, a, you know, it was the same at the U S championships for her where, you know, she, she really needed that Hayward magic and, and the crowd came through for her and it, and it happened again here. So, um, you know, and I think with Sydney McLaughlin's run Friday night, I think, I think it was a, a very loud stadium. So there were definitely moments where I think, you know, longtime track fans who, would have been at the old Hayward and and then we're back at the new one. They would have felt a similar, you know, similar vibe for sure. All right, let's take a quick break. Then we'll come back and talk a bit more with Joel Odom, sports editor for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Okay, Joel, so the path to getting the world championships in Eugene was a long one, but I, I seem to recall that it kind of started with Vin LaNana, the former coach of uh, the Oregon Ducks track and field programming. I mean, is that right? He was the guy who kind of wanted this to happen. Uh, ultimately, if you go back in time and and what was the the mission, I guess, to, to get the this mega events um, in Eugene? Yeah, I think I think Vin Lanana definitely is the one who you could point to and say he's the one who originally had this vision to to bring this big event. You know, I I, I did hear Phil Knight um, was interviewed on on the telecast um, on the NBC telecast uh, one of the final nights, and you know he mentioned that he he asked uh, about having the World Championships come to Eugene as as long ago as 1995. Um, so, wow. you know, we, we can't count out Phil Knight's contributions as well, but, um, but yeah, it was, you know, 2015, I believe is when, um, you know, when the, the governing body, the world governing body for track and field, um, decided to cite these championships in Eugene and, and yeah, Vin Lanana had, had a key role in that. And I think, you know, whether you're talking about Lanana or Phil Knight, um, I think the, you know, sort of their idea and mission was the same, which is, you know, Eugene's Tracktown USA. Uh, there's obviously, you know, a ton of, of history and, you know, um, iconic 
athletes and iconic performances that have have come out of Eugene and so you know let's let's have it have it be a showpiece for the world that you know we can we can host a big event in a similar way as you know all these other giant cities in the world have done so with the world championships in the past you know Doha Qatar in 2019 and London in 2017 and Beijing in 2015 Mo- Moscow in 2013 you know so and do you think that they accomplished that i know we're we're, we're still li- people are literally cleaning up as we speak and in Eugene i'm sure but um did they accomplish that to show that Eugene can do this i i suppose time will tell you know exactly how Eugene gets judged for you know the the way that the event came off but i think the early reports are that it, that things went well and you know the united states definitely definitely showed well at these championships they they came away with 33 medals which is a record for world championships um for any country and um you know they they had i believe it's three different sweeps that they had you know sweeping the medals um and so I think the event sort of, you know, it went smoothly enough and it and it showed between some big performances and and you know, world records falling. I think I think it was um if you were watching from anywhere in the world, you you saw, hey, you know, this this was a, a, an exciting meet um regardless of of, you know, where it was being held. I think the early signs are that it was a success and and went off well. At the same time, Joel, I think one of the main <laughs> things that people will take away from this event, especially people who don't pay attention to track and field, happened right towards the very beginning involving uh, a name that a lot of Oregonians might know or specifically Oregon Duck fans. Uh, remind us what happened with Devin Allen and and what does this whole situation say about just track and um you know how it's hard to crack through to the mainstream yeah what an unfortunate situation uh that was uh obviously uh just devastating for devin allen himself so what what happened was um devin allen who's a a two-sport star he played wide receiver for the oregon ducks and uh ran track for them as well and now as a professional um, is, uh, a, a hurdle specialist at the, um, 110 meter hurdles and was among the favorites to medal, um, and potentially maybe, you know, vie for the gold medal in the, the 110 hurdles final last Sunday night, the first Sunday of the meet. And, um, you know, he, he lines up for the race, the gun goes off and, and there's a, you know, a false start and, um, What's what was interesting about it was it it wasn't a false start because he left the blocks too early uh, before the gun went off. It was a false start because um, the measuring system that determines when he left the blocks, uh, the you know computerized technology, um, said that he had left the blocks point zero nine nine seconds after the gun went off, whereas the allowable time is point one zero zero seconds. So by one thousandth of a second, um, Devin Allen winds up getting disqualified and is sent off the track. Uh, and his lane is open for the final. And it's you know a, a stunning thing for him, um, and also you know for the fans. And there's 
you know, I'm sure for, as you said, the casual track fan out there, it's just mass confusion. How does this happen? Why is he disqualified over reaction time? And so, yeah, it, it points to sort of this issue that track has where, you know, sometimes their their rules and procedures are so, you know, technical and, and you know, precise that uh, it it sort of gets in the way of following it as a spectator sport. And so there was a lot of talk after afterward that, you know, track and field needs to change, change that rule or look at that rule because, um, you know, on the video replays, it doesn't appear that, you know, he, again, he didn't, he didn't react before the gun went off and didn't seem like he, you know, had any advantage. And so, yeah, it was just a really, uh, a really unfortunate situation. Um, and it, and it, you know, in, in what we expected was going to be a huge moment, you know, him running basically on his home track and with a chance to medal. And it's the same, it was the same night that, you know, Ryan Krauser, another, um, Oregon guy won the gold medal in the shot put. So it, it had the potential to just be, you know, this huge moment, um, in Oregon track and field. And, it, and instead it turned into just, you know, such a, such an unfortunate situation. Yeah, and uh, Devin's other sport, football, and, and other sports like basketball, um, you know, aren't immune to technological creep, so to speak, when you think of all the instant replays that we see about whether they, you know, the uh, did the ground dislodge the ball, for example. What is, uh, a, what is a catch, right? In the NFL, exactly. Has been an interesting debate. But, um, but yeah, it just, it's sort of, you know, it was, it was too bad because it, it kind of, um, took some of the shine off of that that night and and off of again yeah a, lo- a local star who um you know everyone sort of had figured would would be you know in the spotlight and and you know likely a, a medal contender it's bizarre a little bit bizarre to me that um you know reading our coverage uh the uh, track uh head honchos are are saying you know uh right in the, as this is ending that you know the goal is to is to make track just like a big success as as we look ahead to 2028 so they're saying it themselves right joel that they 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 want to grow the sport which i guess you know makes sense regardless of the sport but it seems like it's just like this decades-long push but um you know i'm thinking back to when i was a kid and i guess marion jones and michael johnson and you know they're big stars and and flojo before that and carl lewis but i guess is is the hope that you know the sydney mclaughlin's and the noah lyles and and uh you know a thing mo the uh, uh american 800 meter phenom who we haven't talked about yet but also had a huge moment like that they're gonna be just mega stars come 2028 because that seems hard in in our crowded sports media landscape that that um you know you know so well yeah it's definitely definitely a challenge for them you know it's you're not gonna I don't think you're suddenly going to make track and field, you know, one of the top three or four spectator sports in this country. And it, and it might never happen, you know, um, obviously from their perspective, you know, you, you have to try, right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the fact that you have so much star power in the sport here, you know, sort of drives home Sebastian Coe's point that, um, you know, it's, the United States, when it when when you're comparing it to the interest in other countries in track and field, you know, he says the United States is not punching its weight. And 
that's definitely true, but it's also it's also true that I, it's difficult. It would be difficult for the U.S. to to actually reach that point. It's you know the the big sports, the NFL and and the NBA and you know college sports behind them. There are a lot of high interest sports that are going to eclipse track and field at this point. And I'm not sure how that, how that changes. And if that changes, um, I, you know, I, I think dynamic young stars will definitely help. Yes. Sydney McLaughlin, Noah Lyles, names like that, um, could definitely help, but it doesn't pervade, uh, our culture in the same way that I think that it probably did in the eighties and nineties with the names you mentioned, like Carl Lewis, Michael Johnson, you know, Flojo. So I I don't know that I see it having some significant me- meteoric growth. Um, but I also don't know that it has to have that in order to still be relevant and viable in our sports landscape. I think that you have these high interest stars, um, they're going, they're going to get noticed, you know, even if it's not year round and all the time, they're going to get noticed when the big competitions do come up. And, and I do think that the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles will be a big deal. I think that there will be a ton of interest in, in those games. And, and yeah, there are stars right now who are still going to be relevant and winning medals six years from now. Yeah. And, uh, Sebastian Coe is the person I was referencing who I couldn't think of the name. That's the president of world athletics, right? Correct. Um, who, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess 2028 is, is not, not that far away. And, uh, yeah, thing Mo will only be 26 or something like that. So she'll be in the prime of her, her career. So, um, yeah. And, and talking about sports landscape, right? I mean, look at baseball where they have arguably more stars than they've had in, in a long time. And it's, it feels like they're on the outside, you know, in a lot of respects in gaining attention, it's hard when the NFL and the NBA are year round sports making headlines. Right. So, um, what happens from here? I mean, is this the, is this a one-off? Is this the, the first and only world athletics championship in Eugene or is it going to be coming back, uh, sometime down the line? Yeah. You know, what happens from here is likely it would be a long time before Eugene were to host um, world, the world championships again, if ever, you know, I know they like to rotate it around. Um, but you know, there will continue to be big, important track meets held at Hayward field, uh, the Prefontaine classic, um, which is an annual event, uh, is one of the best, you know, best track meets in the world, uh, on a consistent basis. It draws, you know, world-class talent, um, on a, a sim- in a similar way to the world championships. It's just not every single event in track and field, but, um, you know, it's part of the diamond league circuit mm-hmm. that is, you know, basically the pro circuit in track and field. And, um, I think next year, um, Hayward is going to host the diamond league finals, um, which, um, you know, that's, that's significant. It, it, it's sort of like the, you know, championship for, for that pro circuit. And I think that will, that will be its first time hosting. So, you know, now that this stadium has been modernized and, and, um, you know, all this 
all this money has been poured into a complete and total renovation. Um, it's ready to continue to host world-class track meets. And I think that people like Phil Knight are going to continue to try to make that happen. Speaking of Phil Knight, obviously, um, uh, he was a long distance or middle distance, long distance runner at U of O. And that's, um, always been kind of the lifeblood of the, the diehards is what they care about. Um, maybe it doesn't have the cultural resonance in America as, um, as the sprinters and, or maybe that's just where the talent is. Um, but can, we didn't talk at all about, um, Jakob Ingebrigtsen and, uh, um, kind of, he seems like kind of a spunky character who, uh, He's not an American, but uh, he's, uh, 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 you know, obviously got a lot of personality. The Norwegian who won the the 5,000 meter, and that's not even his his best event. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about if we're talking about young stars in track and field, uh, I was definitely remiss in not mentioning Jakob Ingebrigtsen. You know, he was the heavy favorite or at least among the top favorites to win the 1500 meters. Uh, he, he's the reigning Olympic champion in that event. And he, uh, he was beaten. He took the silver medal. Um, and so, yeah, he, he definitely, um, you know, it was only a day or two after that. I think that the, the first round of the men's 5000 took place. And, and after that, um, you know, I remember uh, the the quote from him after that first round of the 5,000 was, you know, something along the lines of that he, you know, he didn't see any reason why he wouldn't win in the final. Um, so, you know, and the <laughs> his remarks after he he went on and went and won the final on on Sunday uh, continued to demonstrate that he's not lacking for confidence. Um and, you know, it, it was, it was at the, you know, on his final lap of the the first round of the 5,000, he's, he's, you know, he's coming down the home straight and he's lifting his arms to pump up the crowd for more cheers. Like, you know, come on, give it to us. Um, and, you know, in the final yesterday, uh, which was, you know, it was a, it was a warm afternoon for sure, but, you know, in the middle of the race, he's. Uh, at least once or twice he's, he stops at the water table to grab water, which is unusual for a on the track event. Um, you know, most guys don't do that and he still finds a way to, you know, go to the front and, and win the thing at the end. So I think if we're talking about stars who can drive interest and continue to, to make the sport relevant, he's definitely, you know, he's definitely one who could be a factor there because he's, uh, he has that, he has the the big presence and the talent to back it up. Now I'm curious, Joel, as we kind of wrap up here. Um, you know, I've covered I covered the trials back in 08, so like a long time ago. But I remember kind of a sense that this was, you know, it, it created a little village, right? Where there's a little bubble around the old Hayward at the time, and like people were all kind of, you know, right there on you know, whether it was on Agate street or, um, adjacent to the, to the stadium, and maybe they didn't get out and explore Eugene much. Um, and it seems from our coverage that, uh, a lot of the rest of this city was geared up for, for crowds that didn't ultimately materialize. And I'm wondering, um, and that could be for many reasons, but I'm wondering if like going forward, you know, we're going to have this little bubble that is this 
track Mecca, uh, this international destination, but uh, where you can get everything you need right there. But maybe Eugene isn't going to benefit as much, if that makes any sense. Do you think that could be a dynamic where, you know, the rest of the town isn't getting the traffic because everyone's just hanging out right there? Because why leave when, you know, Nike and and the sponsors provide everything you need right there? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, question. I, I'm not sure how much, you know, how far beyond the bubble people did go. Uh, again, I think, yeah, the businesses that were right there probably, you know, benefited greatly. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. You know, one of the things that I that I heard was that, you know, just kind of anecdotally was was that you know the athletes really appreciated that they weren't having long bus rides to the stadium um, like they might have had if they were you know at the world championships in a large city and were staying way off site or something um so i think there's give and take there i think that it's it probably makes for you know a, a unique experience for the athletes if the athlete village is right you know right adjacent to the stadium and things like that but it probably does have you know it it does have the potential to put a dent in in um you know the the businesses farther out from that sphere um but i would say that you know there were still a significant number of fans um who were staying probably all over the city and um and who were you know patronizing shops and restaurants all around town and that you know i i think that eugene also did a pretty good job of trying to, you know, create, um, other places, you know, they had the riverfront festival that was going on throughout and, uh, with, you know, lots of food carts and, you know, kids events and, uh, a huge screen where people could watch, you know, watch the events. Um, and so, you know, there was effort made to, to make the, the world championships, live you know somewhat outside of of the the little u of o um circle so yeah it's hard to say uh exactly how much um how much there was as far as benefit um for the for the businesses you know just anywhere in eugene but um i would i would venture to say that it 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 was still a net positive. Well, uh, all the event coverage and write-ups and uh, great reporting from that event, live online at OregonLive.com. And uh, I thank you for uh, taking time to talk about it and for shepherding coverage from uh, pretty fascinating 10 days. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. You can go back and read our coverage from Eugene at OregonLive.com slash Oregon22 or HereIsOregon.com slash Oregon22. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.